very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or if your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, you don't want to miss it. Just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You'll get your login immediately. And the same with SanitasRadio.com. If you have a listen there, I would highly suggest that you do. Well, that's if you'd like to upgrade yourself. It's your life. Take control. And I have some good news for those of you who still have not joined Sanitas. Listen up. For a limited time, if you are an active Veritas subscriber, as a way to say thank you, I will give you four months for the price of three when you subscribe to Sanitas. If you subscribe right now, instead of getting three months, you will receive four months, one full month free. Go to VeritasRadio.com and click on the subscribe button. You will see that loyalty offer right there for all loyal Veritas members who wish to subscribe to Sanitas. It's a way to say thank you for subscribing to both. Take advantage of this offer. Subscribe today and get one month free. And by popular demand, and to celebrate the release of his fifth installment of his Missing 411 series, the new book is titled Missing 411, A Sobering Coincidence. Today's special guest is best-selling author, investigative journalist, former law enforcement officer, and senior executive in the technology sector. David Polites. His research now takes us to the city. To learn more about David Polites and purchase all his books, including the most recent one, visit his website at canonmissing.com, which is also linked at ours. And directly from Colorado, I would like to welcome our good friend, David Polites. Hello, David, and welcome back to Veritas. How are you? Mel, I'm doing great. Thanks again for the invite. Always a pleasure to be here with you. Oh, it's always a delight. Your interviews are always very, very informative, but also very riveting. So before we begin to discuss your, your new book, Missing 411, a Subring Coincidence, I think it's important to remind the listeners of the existing, or what it seems to be, to any rational mind, a cover-up. Can you tell us what happened after trying several times via the FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act, to request a list of missing persons at Yosemite National Park? You were told again and again that they don't keep a list of the missing. But one day, an NPS attorney contacted you. What transpired during that conversation? $34,000 to obtain the list of missing from Yosemite and $1.4 million for the list of the entire system. Tell us more. So we, we were given a heads up by other national park rangers that there was a series of disappearances that they didn't understand. The people disappeared in areas that didn't make sense. And when they tried to find out information about it, they were hit with roadblocks and obstructions. And what they essentially stated is that during that first seven to 10 days that someone's missing, there's a lot of publicity, a lot of press, a lot of law enforcement. And then bang, at the end, everyone leaves. That's the end of it. You never hear from it again. And that's there's no follow-up. So the National Park Service has a large contingent of federally trained police officers, and they have a law enforcement branch that has a chief and assistant chief and all the hierarchy you'd see in a city police department. 
But these are federally trained at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, super good, outstanding training, better than most police departments get. Well, we knew that they had this. We know that they're smart people, and uh, most medium-sized police departments and larger always have lists of missing people in their department, and most of them are on a website that the department has. And the general feeling in law enforcement is the more publicity you get about missing people, the better. And uh, so we filed the Freedom of Information Act request against the National Park Service, and we asked for a list of people missing in their jurisdiction. 183 different locations, monuments, etc. And we got a response back that uh, they didn't have any. So we filed again, thinking it's a semantical issue, and we get a call back from an attorney from the National Park Service asking us why we wanted the information. Well, before you go barking up a tree, you want to know what's up that tree, and you want to know that you don't make the mistakes and, and have obstructions towards getting that info. So I told the attorney, I said, hey, that's an inappropriate question, because according to the Freedom of Information Act, you can't use that as part of the reason whether you give the information up or not. So I said, I'm reluctant to say it other than it's for some research. And he says, well, you're not going to get it. And I said, what do you mean I'm not going to get it? And he says, well, we don't keep track of that information. I said, what do you mean you don't keep track? And he goes, we don't have a list of missing people. And I said, well, you guys have lists of movies that you made at various national park landmarks and locations. You have a list of that online. You have a list of all the inventory you have of product at the parks. So you're telling me that you don't have a list of missing people and where they disappeared in your parks. That's correct. And I said, okay, well, I'll find out, file another Freedom of Information Act request because I'm a published author. There's an exemption for the cost for that. make a long story short, I filed the exemption, and I got a response back saying that my books were not in enough libraries to qualify for that exemption. <laughs> That's laughable. So we did a lot of research, and there's no such thing. There's no such requirement that you have to be in a certain amount of libraries. It just says you have to be a published author. And then they came back and said, because you're not in enough libraries, it's going to cost you $34,000 for a list of missing people from Yosemite, because we don't have it. We're going to have to put it together. And then if you want it from our entire system, it's going to cost you $1.4 million. Now, piggyback to that, I filed the same sort of Freedom of Information Act request with the United States Forest Service. And they came back with almost an identical response saying, we don't have a list of missing people from our jurisdiction it's unbelievable to me and everybody else who hears it. So the question is, if they're charging you 34000 what is the 34000 for if they allegedly don't have a list? So what they said was is that they'd have to put together that list if we pay the money. And it's going to be time for their staff at $60 an hour to research it and to put the list together. Did you ask him why don't they have a list? If somebody gets lost, why don't they keep that? I, I, I know I've asked you this question several times before and you've answered, but just to refresh the memory of our listeners. Well, their response, you will almost buckle over it with laughter. Uh, this came from the head of the Freedom of Information Act uh, contact in Denver, uh, a woman named Claris Wilson, uh, Cheris Wilson, that works for the National Park Service in Denver. In an email, she told me, we don't need to put together a list because we rely, and this is a quote, on the institutional memory of our employees for that information. <sighs> so if you lose 100 people in one month, you expect everybody to remember everything, every detail. Well, I almost responded back and I said, if it's that easy, then why charge me $1.4 Let's just rely <laughs> on that institutional memory. Hey, I'll donate a, a spreadsheet to them. I'll, I'll even put a voluntary work of people to just add those to a list. But of course, I think the reason I'm speculating here is because they don't want to add any suspicion. They don't want people to stop going to the national parks and lose all that revenue. So better just rub, you know, just put it under the rug and let, you know, people be happy, do their picnics and just hike, you know, without any worries about what may be transpiring behind the woods. Well, as a, as a real good journalist told me probably two or three years ago now, he said, here's an angle for you to think about, is that if the Park Service is aware of some issue of liability on their property and they do nothing about it, 
then they are liable from that point forward if anything happens. If they claim ignorance of an issue or they don't claim they don't know of an issue, then there is no liability on their behalf. So Dave, if you have, you know, dozens of people missing from Yosemite and they claim that they don't know that it's a problem, then really there's no liability. So the next person that disappears, the Park Service can just say, well, wow, we, we didn't real, realize it was that big an issue. Do they have some kind of disclaimer where we're not responsible for disappearances, loss of or stolen items? You know, usually what you see in a commercial establishment in the event that this happens? Uh, there may be one, but I would, uh, I would guess that when you entered the park, you would have to be it's presented with that or have to sign something and you never do. Right, right. Now, after many years and thousands of hours of investigative work, have you determined where the largest cluster of missing people fit in your profile is? Oh, without a doubt, it's Yosemite National Park. Is that because it's the largest park? No. No, I, I don't think so, because there's disappearances that go back oh, 50, 60, 70 years that we've documented where there's been almost two people at a time or two people with identical backgrounds missing from the same school. And the parents write documents to the president saying, hey, there's no way our 26-year-old son would just vanish from the floor of a national park we're requesting that the military comes in and searches. This was sent to Eisenhower. I went to the Eisenhower Library, got a copy of the letter, and Eisenhower just completely ignored it. So this has been going on a long time. It's incredible that in this day and age, we just can't have a database to be able to, to track. Now, David, for years, and this is the focus of today's interview, for years you stayed away from investigating missing people in cities in the, in the uh, your urban areas because the disappearances could usually be attributable to someone being abducted by a gang member, an angry former husband, fill in the blanks, etc. Have you found that the criteria used in investigating cases in the wilderness can now be also applied in the city? In other words, have you now transitioned to the city? So looking at the last four years when I was staying in urban areas, national parks, national forest, 52 clusters of missing people, geographical clusters of missing people in North America, one of the criteria. Second one being is that you bring in canines and things, and the, the bloodhounds that are brought to the scene sometimes walk in circles, they lay down, they can't find a scent. Third issue is Sometimes the search and rescue teams have searched an area dozens, maybe walked a trail hundreds of times. They're just about to give up, or they do give up, and a volunteer goes into the area the next week, and in the area that had been searched a hundred times, bango, they find the victim right in the middle of the area that had been searched. So those are a few of the criteria that we've established in those rural areas. Uh, I got to give credit, part of this credit, to George Knapp. Uh, investigative journalist in Las Vegas. Uh, he and I talk all the time, and he said, "You know, you're gonna you're gonna migrate to the city. Trust me, because you've laid out a finite set of criteria. If you stay to that and you go to the city, and you're gonna be surprised, I think, because there's gonna be disappearances there." And it kind of shook me up one time when he said that, but I started paying attention, and over the following three or four months, I was reading an article about uh, a city in Wisconsin, where a series of young men in college disappeared. Uh, they were found in the river, and the cause of death was drowning. And the coroner say, stated that uh, sometimes they couldn't determine the cause of death, but in the times they could, they did drown. And that the dogs that went looking for the people couldn't find a scent from the place they were last seen. And that, that raised my interest. And that was probably the kickoff point. And I was reluctant to really jump in with both feet because of something that you've stated before, Mel, and that is plausible deniability. If I step into this arena, it's going to be easy for naysayers to really come out and say, there is nothing here. It's just drunk college students going out and finding their way to the water and disappearing. 
But I found a series of cases where medical examiners stepped up. Sometimes it was a secondary autopsy paid for by parents. Other times it was just straight up law enforcement people saying, hey, they, they got in the water somehow, but how they got from the point they were last seen to the water, we have no idea because there's no evidence how they got from A to B. And then other times the autopsy said, well, yeah, we found them in the water and they've been missing for four weeks, but we can only prove they were in the water for a week. This goes back to what I stated earlier about victims are often found in an area that had been searched many times. And I don't think that search and rescue people or canines are inept. I don't think the people were there when it was searched. They came back later and they were placed there somehow. I don't understand how, but this new book proves beyond a doubt based on coroner's findings that this is happening today around North America and five other countries that I can prove that people are getting placed back in the water and they're dead. Where they've been the entire time, don't know. And that's the question. What happens to, to them? Let's say somebody gets lost, two weeks go by, they show up at a lake that was searched already, and the person is there, but they there's no rigor mortis. They, 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 they're not that uh, decomposed. So obviously, they were place in the water at the in the end. But before we begin discussing the cases in your new book, I remember your last book, The Devil's in the Details, you found some common denominator there or common denominators such as high level of intellect in the missing, other common traits. What have you found in, in city cases? Anything in common? Because I started reading the book and in the end, a lot of the cases seemed so similar almost as if the script is being played by the, if we say, perpetrators. Exactly correct. So if people were, were dying and finding their way into the water somehow, you would think that there would be alcoholics, the drunks of the world, the vagrants sleeping on sidewalks, they get drunk, they stumble into a bay, a pond. They, they'd be the ones you would expect being found. But in all my research, there's some one of those type found. The type that are being found that I've written about are the smartest and the best of the best in that college age bracket. The, the stories are is that these young men and women uh, were star athletes, star scholars, star musicians on scholarship. They're the ones that are found deceased, dead in the water. And you would think, okay, if you follow the analogy that this is happening, then you have to be able to pass that on to every other college that's on a river, near a river, near a large body of water. And college kids are college kids, no matter where you go. If they're drinking at one school, they're going to be drinking at another school. And why aren't, if this is truly happening at random, why isn't it happening at random at every university in the world and have these numbers of missing people from those locations? But it's not. It's happening in confined locations in a clustering geographical effect exactly like I, I did and I identified in the other missing 411 bucks in rural areas. But now just transition it to a university college setting near a large body of water. Let's dive into the cases now. The, the first case happens to be in the state where I reside, Arizona, the college town of Tempe, less than two hours northwest of where I am. But let's begin with Willie Jigbass' disappearance, Dave. So Willie uh, disappeared on uh, January 15, 2011, 24 years old. This is a very rare case of a black man that I write about. And I don't write about them too often because they aren't part of the group that I've, di I've identified. Uh, but some article said that Willie was a former Arizona State University student. That wasn't true. He was raised in San Jose, California, location where I was raised. Graduated from Leland High School. 2009, he left for Tempe. And in 2011, he was about to start a new job at Kona Grill. His background was he was a big athlete, 49er fan, giant fan. On January 14th, later in the evening, he went to a party with his friends at a place called the Sotelo Apartments in, 
in uh, Tempe. Uh, late at night, the party got too big, so the police came and started to break it up. Uh, Willie missed his friend's connection, and in a weird sort of set of coincidences, his cell phone went dead. He lived a mile and a half away, and he didn't have money for a cab, so he just decided he was going to walk it. Well, he never arrived back home, and for the following two days, friends tried to contact him, call him, went by his house, knocked on the door, nothing. He was uh, listed as a missing person, and on January 26th through the 28th, there were a series of ground searches that produced nothing from the route he went missing on. And at that point, they broke uh, Tempe Town Lake into grids, and they started to search it. And outside the primary grid area of the lake, but in the water, they found his body. And the coroner stated he probably died by drowning, but there was no official confirmation on the cause of death. The wording was suspicious. It was almost like uh, a local report for local consumption, which I've stated in the book. And that is, is that just to soothe the anxiety of the community, let's say, well, he probably died by drowning. They didn't say he did dry, drown by drown, uh, die by drowning, just said it probably did. To calm the population, because I remember, I believe it was the 1980s, late 1980s, all those murders in, in Florida. You know, once you say that, it just creates fear. But in this case, you could never find the toxicology results and neither the determination on the cause of death from the Maricopa County Coroner's Office. Isn't this elemental, an elemental aspect that should be available during a forensic investigation of the case, Dave? Absolutely. No doubt about it. So what happens when you ask and you demand that and they say, no, it's not available. What is the reason for it not to be available? These are public servants. Well, that's a good question. And in some ways, I blame the local reporters in these various cities for not having the thirst to get the answers. It says, okay, let's report on this. And, you know, nothing suspicious. The guy just drowned in water. Let's drop the case and move on. Hmm. Don't you want to find out why they died? Or if there's two or three people that died like that in the same place, wouldn't you want to know why? And there, there seems like this a superficial aspect of looking at the news, but nobody wants to go down and get the bare bones facts. That, that true investigative journalist that digs for the facts and uncovers a big story, you don't see that very often. No, you don't. And I see that all the time. All you see when you turn on the TV, if you have 100 channels and they'll have news in every channel, it's almost as if you could be switching channels and listening to the same, same script. The journalists who used to create news, it's not that they're no longer around, but they're just not employed anymore. That's, that's a fact. And then there are two other cases. In, in total, three young men found the same lake 28 months apart under suspicious circumstances. This is the only large body of water in this town, folks, and one of the driest states in the nation. How they compose where the bodies when they were found. I ask you because this may be able to tell us if the victims were alive days or maybe even weeks after they were found dead in the water. I always have to be careful how I craft my questions since I, I know you deal with facts. But what does your forensic criminal investigative experience tell you? Well, I can't take credit for all of it because there was a, we can talk about this later if you want, but there was a detective in New York named Kevin Gannon, and uh, he was a homicide and missing person investigator in New York City. And there were a series of water deaths similar to what I've explained here in New York. And he, he was the one guy that started to pay special attention to it. And bodies were recovered in areas that didn't make sense like Tempe Town Lake. I mean, it doesn't make any sense why somebody drowns in there who can swim. And uh, he started to pay attention and uh, how a body ended up in a specific location of the East River. He, he'd drop a float there and see which way it went. And, and then he started talking to the coroners and saying, well, you know, we recovered this body, but the body doesn't look like it's been in the water for three weeks. And then they'd start to get into the forensics. And he's one of the people years ago that started to say something unusual is happening here these bodies are not in the water but here they had a couple of cases where evidence was that the person dies on land but they show that they drowned now how does that happen 
so there's, there's forensically things that happen to the body that if you die on land, uh, namely you get certain kinds of flies on your groin. So if you die on land and you get thrown in the water and they recover your body later, you're still going to find this larvae and things around your groin. And they started finding this. And then some very smart medical examiners started to look at it and say, well, now if they put a body in the water and the body isn't moving and you can't fight it, then maybe they're drugged some way. And in the book, we go through, I, I, I walk people through these cases where people are suspected of drowning. And what kinds of things do they test for normally on the body? And what kinds of things don't they test for? And some very smart medical examiners on the East Coast started to test for something called GHB. GHB is known as a date rape drug. And what that essentially does to you is it makes your body immobile. You're awake. You know what's happening to you, but you can't move. Now, it leaves the body very rapidly. It's something that's, on, that's produced at very low levels in your system. And unless you're tested for it very quickly after death, it leaves the body very quickly. It's one of these drugs that is not on the primary screen list of medical examiners when they're doing autopsies. One of the things I write about in the book is I said, everybody who's found in the water should go through an autopsy and GHB should be tested for. Because as I talk about these cases in the books, a few of the bodies that went through secondary autopsies at the request of the parents, the coroners through their testing found super high levels of GHB in their system. How it got there, who put it there, it wasn't normal, but it kind of accounts for these people who are found in the water, drowned, but how did they get there and why did they drown when they were good swimmers? Are you saying that GHB is metabolized rather quickly to become almost undetectable? Correct. Interesting. Now, the common denominator that I see with these cases and national parks is, once again, keep the facts under the rug to prevent loss of revenue. In this case, how many parents would take their kids out of ASU, Arizona State University. In other words, why rock the boat by releasing the facts? Why test for something that you don't need to test for, right? Right. Exactly. No, that's a, that's a big concern. In the last uh, six months, a couple of different medical examiners actually contacted me who had read the books. And one in particular, I talked to them regularly. And they have stated that you don't hear about this very often, the public, but medical examiners are a rare breed because certain they're, they're intrigued by the body. They're intrigued by trying, the challenge of trying to find the cause of death. And by not finding the cause of death, it bothers them immensely. And they've known about these series of deaths that are unaccounted for. They can't find the cause of death, and it bothers them. They know something weird is going on. And uh, that, that relieved me because here I am writing about all these deaths and the coroners can't figure it out. And I'm thinking, well, maybe it's just me, but no, it bothers the profession too. Because it, just like you said at the beginning, in this 21st century with all the testing mechanisms and things and scientific aspects we have to uh, life and death, we should be able to figure this out, but we're not. I can see how they are frustrated by the fact that they can determine the cause of death. But I wonder how many do know and the powers that want to be locally, federally, who knows, they are told to not release the report because blah, blah, blah. And they just simply plead the fifth in a way. Well, I won't say the case, but in the last year, there was a disappearance of a small child. And the child was gone, I think, five or six or seven days in the wilderness. And their body was found uh, in, a, in an area with, with, that was very suspicious. How they got there, where they were for the last seven days, et cetera, et cetera, were all suspicious. And the coroner did an autopsy and said that they died of hypothermia probably that first night. And I looked at the weather reports, and it wasn't that cold. And... 
the distance that this child traveled was way outside the bounds of what search and rescue said is normal. And I called this coroner and I told them about the case and they said, yeah, I read it. And they said that uh, their gut was, is that that coroner wrote that report up to quell any concerns of the family and to let them have peace with the incident. And I'm thinking to myself, so this happens. I, I didn't, I didn't ask a specific person this, but by, that statement, it must happen a lot that they do that. Oh, it happens all the time. Not to mix other scenarios with what you discussed, but I remember here years ago with the quote-unquote Tucson massacre when our congresswoman was shot here and other people died. There was one judge here who also died. He was uh, shot in the stomach. But when you read the coroner's report, cause of death said blunt force trauma to the head. And people didn't connect the dots. I don't want to open a, a Pandora's box here today, but it's just so sh to show you that the media reports one thing and then they have something else. But the next case takes us to California, specifically. By the way, before I ask you the California case, this to me, you say there's no other cluster like this anywhere in the Western United States. What do you think happened or what did the three young men know? What did they know? So let's let's presume for a second that it's not what you know. Let's presume. I, I mean, I've heard a hundred different variations to that. Um, number one, maybe they all had the same blood type. Dave, why don't you find out the blood type? Well, first of all, your blood type isn't on any coroner's report. It isn't in any on any law enforcement report. So we would never know. Maybe they had similar DNA. Again, we would never know because it's not on any blood work, it's not on any coroner's report. There's all these variables, and they're good that people bring up. But why, if, if you look at a national map that's on the back of the book, that, and it shows the locations of all the disappearances, if you look at, at the western U.S., there's a couple of cases up in Washington, and there's a couple of cases in L.A., and there's this little group of disappearances right in Tempe. But then there's nothing else anywhere around there. Now, why? You, you, you got me. I have no idea. And this is, this is what keeps us going because we scratch our heads and we just trying to find, I have this, uh, I don't know if I have Asperger's syndrome or some kind of autism. Uh, no disrespect to anybody who's autistic out there. But when I find that I can't connect dots, it's very troublesome to me. And when I read David's books, I'm just scratching my head all the time. I just cannot find that missing link. That's why I'm hoping that the next time you come up with a book, we can find more missing links. But the next case takes us to California, specifically Newport Beach. I lived in that area in Orange County, and it's considered one of the safest areas in the nation. The case of Alan Sung Long Link, another case of someone of high intellect. Tell us more, David. Super, super smart guy. He was born in Berkeley, California. I went to school at Cal and you know, there's a lot of smart people that live up there. His dad was a Ph.D. That's why they were there. Eventually, the family moved to Irvine, and he graduated from University High School in Irvine. He was known by his friends as a great athlete, writer, artist, scholar, just, just a stand-up young man. One of his uh, professors said that in the years that he knew Alan, the guy was never sad, mad, or upset. He was just a joy to be around. He was considered by some to be optimistic and smart. Uh, he ended up going to UC Irvine, studied mechanical engineering. And a uh, professor said he spent countless hours in the engineering lab writing equations, working on things, and just really a committed, smart guy. Well, on February 5th, 2011, he went drinking at a place called Rudy's Pub and Grill at Newport Beach. And about 1 a.m., uh, closed-circuit television caught him leaving the bar and that was the last time anybody saw him alive. The next day he was reported missing. And uh, there was a large search of the harbor area, the grounds, the area between there and his house. Nothing. On February 13th, about eight days after he disappeared, at 7.15 a.m., a resident from the area was walking over near Lido Park Drive and something called the Rhine, R-H-I-N-E, channel. And they saw a body in the water. Uh, police went out 200 yards from the pub where he disappeared. 
they found Alan's body. Now, the cause of death, according to the coroner, was saltwater drowning, meaning he drowned by a, uh, in a saltwater atmosphere. His blood alcohol level was between a 0.16 and 0.19, and the coroner stated that the one perplexing thing is they have no idea how he got in the water. <laughs> Incredible. And I'm only on the third case, and I'm already seeing common traits, bodies of water, young victims between 18 and 22 years of age, high intellect. Now, this is the one that puzzles me too. Alcohol levels twice or more than the legal limit found in their blood. Do a lot of these young men, are they known for drinking, or is this something that happens coincidentally? So, no, most of them aren't known for their heavy drinking. Uh, there was a case out of the Wisconsin-Minnesota area where a young man comes out of a bar. He's stopped by police officers, and he's stopped because he looks underage. They talk to him. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. The bars are closed. Uh, they talk to him. They interview him, and they determine he's not intoxicated, and they let him go on his way. Make a long story short, that night, that, that specific person disappeared. And he's found in, I think it was the Mississippi River, days later, uh, and his blood alcohol level was off the charts high. And they went back and they talked to the police officers and they said, well, first of all, the bars were closed. And he wasn't intoxicated when we talked to him. Right. How did he get in the water, number one? And number two, how did he get to such a high level of alcohol in his system? Now, for people that that really haven't drank a lot or been around a lot of people that have drank a lot. When you're a young person, sometimes it's extremely hard to get your blood alcohol level up to these astronomical levels of near three because your body just can't get there before you get sick or you pass out. So when you hear about these levels above 0.25 of these young college kids, nobody can quite understand how they got there and, you know, w without passing out stupidly drunk, and how could they move from point to point if they were that drunk? So it doesn't make a lot of sense. And that one case really profiled that how did the person get that alcohol in their system when the bars were closed? And, there, and he was supposedly heading just down the street to his house. And this is another area that puzzles me because usually if you drink a lot, a lot this way, as you say, you pass out foolishly, you vomit. And I know, I know some kids these days are doing things that are very, very bizarre. They're using injections through their eyes or they're shoving, I hate to be graphic, socks with vodka up their rectum because it goes directly into the bloodstream. But I don't think any of these, these intellectual bodies did this well the evidence doesn't doesn't have anything right. close to that no now december 2005 chicago illinois matthew sumakis 31 matthew was a devoted husband and homebody who loved to be with his pregnant wife another strange one here dave how does a professional man in a bustling downtown area disappear and supposedly fall into the Chicago River without anybody seeing anything and in the early morning hours when he was supposedly headed to a business meeting. This is one of the cornerstone cases in my mind about, if you think about it logically, it makes no sense at all. Uh, Sumakis was, just, just as you said, the devoted husband, the good guy, the excellent business person. He was on the oldest end of the spectrum that I wrote about. He was 31. December 5th, 2005, he went to Chicago for a business conference meeting. His wife, he was from Springfield, Illinois. His wife was four months pregnant. He was a graduate of UMass Amherst, uh, ab described as everybody as an absolute straight arrow. He managed an insurance industry software support team, and he was in Chicago staying at the Sheraton Towers, Important point about this, out of the hundreds of hotels in and around Chicago, uh, of the half dozen cases I've written about in Chicago, two of the people stayed at the Sheraton Towers. The Sheraton Towers sits at the closest point to Lake Michigan and the cl closest point to the Chicago River. And I, I find that highly suspicious. 
he was attending the National Association of Insurance Commissioners Conference. Uh, Close Circuit TV had him leaving the hotel at 7.50 in the morning. Uh, on a normal day, he would call his mom twice, and he would call his wife three times. Uh, so, 7.49 a.m. on December 5th, cameras catch him walking out the hotel towards Illinois Avenue, towards the conference he was supposed to be at. Coworkers said that we're waiting for him at the conference. He never arrived. They called him later, nothing. They called the hotel, nothing. Later that day, uh, friends called his wife and said, hey, have you heard from him? She hadn't, the mom hadn't, and the wife filed a missing persons report. On December 6th, he was supposed to fly home, and he didn't. So detectives went to his room, and they found his laptop, his luggage, and all the personal belongings you would think he'd find in somebody's room under these circumstances. Well, unknown why, Chicago police focused on the river early in their search. They never stated why, but divers went in. They covered the river point to point. They used side-scanning sonar, and that lights up everything so you know what's on the bottom, what's on the sides. Nothing even close to a human body was in the river, and they found nothing. Now, you fast forward 15 days after an eight-day search, 15 days. Sanitation workers were on the river, and they were between an area of Halstead and Division, a long way from downtown, and they found uh, Matthew floating in the river. They ID'd him by his clothing. Cook County Coroner was called. On December 22nd, the coroner stated he died by drowning. The manner he drowned was undetermined, and the toxicology results were never released. Uh, this is interesting here. As a family member who saw the body said that Matthew had to have died really early in the day because he had no facial hair. He was a kind of guy who his beard really grew fast. And they said it was almost as though he was clean shaven. Now, I happened to be in Chicago uh, this past winter, and I went to this area by Halstead and Division. It's an industrial area. It's no place where anybody visiting downtown would go, yet his body is found here. It's an absolutely bizarre case that I don't buy into many of the theories about why he ended up where he did. It's one of those that keeps scratching, you know, I keep scratching my head because I just cannot, as a parent, and speaking of being a parent, here's another case from Illinois. Trevor Boehm, missing November 5th, 08. This one hits home for me and, and for the many parents like you, David. And like many who drop their kids uh, off at college, and, and that is a time when you truly sever the umbilical cord and, and they really go on their own. So Trevor's parents traveled from Colorado to Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, for Parents' Day. What happened next? Well, as someone who's done this twice now in my life, once with my son and once with my daughter, and like you said, it's a heartbreaking day when you when you go back for Parents' Day and you kind of want to make sure the kids are doing okay and everyone's happy and Trevor usually talked to his parents every day. Well, he hadn't talked to them in a while, but it had been on the books that they were flying out and they were going to visit on November 8th, 2008. Uh, Northwestern University sits on Lake Michigan in an absolutely gorgeous setting just outside of Chicago. Uh, he was uh, born in Montrose, Colorado, attended a Colorado school there, concentrated on arts and theater. The general consensus is that he was an extremely nice kid really nice. Uh, the parents traveled. They arrived there. They went to his room. They couldn't find him. He had a Schwinn bike that had oversight tires on it that he kept in front of the dorm. They couldn't find that. And after a while, they just threw up their hands and said, okay, let's report him as a missing person. Well, the university pulled the records on his pass card to get into dorms and things, and it was last used on November 5th, three days before the parents came out. Search started, and nothing happened until November 13th, or about five days after the parents got there. Some students were walking along Lake Michigan, and there was a path right next to the lake near an area that they called Landfill, and they found his suede coat, ID card, keys, and cell phone on the rocks near the water. Now, what's interesting about this is that, and I talk about this a lot, the people that disappear, their cell phone either goes dead right as they're disappearing, 
or many times they're found with a dead battery on their cell phone or they don't have the cell phone on them and they're missing clothing or they're missing shoes. In this instance, the cell phone's separated from him and he doesn't have his coat on. Well, the Coast Guard responds and they're thinking that he must be offshore somewhere and they search by boat and they find nothing. Now, fast forward to November 16th or eight days after his uh, parents get there and seven miles south of the campus near a place called Montrose Harbor, people saw a body in the water and it was Trevor. It, they recover it. The coroner says he dies of freshwater drowning, but the manner of the death, they said, was under investigation. They never stated any of uh, the toxicology. They never confirmed any of the outside facts, and that's where the case rested till today. That's it. That's all you know. Again, inconclusive. More and more common denominators here. And now more from Illinois, the case of J. Paul Hill, this case is interesting because Jay was found with life-ending injuries that causes death. His family had to pay 15000 I feel so bad when a family had to, has to pay for something that should be there for them. $15,000 to a private investigator and pathologist to review the Cook County's coroner's findings, and the authorities finally changed their findings to homicide. This case matches many you've investigated before, but where the victim is found with severe life-ending injuries and the coroner rules it accidental or undetermined what do you think that is well mel it makes me ask how many other cases are there just like this remember that statement i said that gannon made in my book that i quoted local reports for local consumption again it's written to appease the needs of the local community it's never going to get outside that community practically and no one's ever going to raise a anything about it. They're not going to question it. Now, what I have found is that almost every time a secondary autopsy is done, different conclusions are found, and then all of a sudden the primary coroner is pressured, as they are in this case, and it's a complete turnabout. Now, Jay was 20 years old. This happened on February 28, 2010 at night in Chicago. And the Chicago Tribune headlines this on August 22, 2011. It said, J. Paul Hill's death is a mystery spanning 20 miles, 18 months. How J. Hill, J. Paul Hill's body turned up far from his Columbia dorm baffles police as much as how he died. Those were the headlines. And he was described as a super smart junior at Columbia College. He was a photography major. He lived in a dorm in downtown. He was born and raised 125 miles northwest of Chicago in a small town called Leno. He was athletic. He was on the wrestling and track team. He was, he was an energetic guy. He, he didn't sit around. He bagged groceries to earn extra money. And he just wanted out of that small town atmosphere, and he got it. He, he was accepted into Columbia. The last confirmed sighting of Jay was February 28, 2010, as he walked out of the dorm. A camera... He had a camera around his neck and his bag over his shoulder that he carried with him everywhere. He exchanged his text with his girlfriend that late Sunday night. He agreed to meet her later at the dorm. He supposedly sent a text to his mom the next day, and this is a little confusing because the timelines don't fit. But he stated in that text to his mom, sorry, busy night, way behind, be in touch, I love you. And the mom said that was something that he would write, so it wasn't suspicious. Now, 24 hours later, his body is found. Now, what's suspicious about this is that Jay didn't have a car. He didn't have any transportation out of the area. But his body's found kind of 20 miles southeast of Columbia in a place called the Little Calumet River. It's a harbor area of old bridges, industrial, and there's a Ford motor plant out there. I went out there, and I can guarantee that you and I would not be walking around out there kind of a rough area, depressed looking, a lot of old closed businesses around a giant old, old harbor area, probably with a lot of industrial waste. On March, on March 2nd, they found his body uh, near Stony Island, near a Ford Motor Plant. His laptop, camera, wallet was missing. Here's the key part for me. He didn't have any pants on. 
He didn't have any shoes on. He only had a shirt. And what, what baffled Chicago police is how he even got there. Now, the Cook County coroner said that there was no alcohol or drugs in his system, but he had extensive skull injuries on both sides of his head, possibly from propeller strikes, but the cause of death was, determined, was stated as undetermined. Now, stop there for a second. I have written in my books in the past about people who have died and are found in the middle of a boulder field with extensive head trauma. And they died of fractured skulls, blunt head trauma, etc. The reality is, is that they thought it was propeller strikes. They weren't sure. Well, the, the family obviously was suspicious by this undetermined cause of death. And they paid 15000 for a second autopsy. That coroner said death resulted from an assault. The coroner changed the finding to homicide. And the police department canvassed all the pawn shops in all of Chicago looking for the things that were missing from Jay. And again, when I was in this area, I'm thinking that's the last place anybody in college from downtown Chicago would end up. There's just no way. And the point, the on-point target for me was his missing pants and his missing shoes. Because I don't care who you are, those aren't going to fall off if you're in a bay like that. Even if you're abducted, I mean, and killed later. Exactly. I don't see why the pants or and the shoes, this is something that brings me back to your other books, The Missing Shoes. And as I keep reading the book, I keep thinking that bodies of water are the perfect place, Dave, for plausible deniability and to hide or at least obfuscate a crime and simply blame it on accidental drowning. Because as you say, perhaps they, they can share the news locally, but they don't want to garner national attention because it puts a black mark on everybody. That's right. And I, I go back to this New York City detective, Gannon, who is the first guy who really decided enough's enough and he's going to look into this because i know in chicago new york boston uh wisconsin area milwaukee these deaths are occurring today and the police departments are ignoring them and some of the coroners are ignoring them but the bodies are going in the water but their bodies weren't in the water the whole time therein lies the big mystery now what i talk about in my past books is that there's a series of cases obviously that all have these intertwining uh, profile points and that the FBI over time has been spending more and more time on these cases when you look at the FBI criteria for investigation why they are there doesn't make any sense but they're there and they're investigating them and uh, there's a couple of things we'll talk about later but the FBI knows something unusual is happening here, and they're trying to get on the front track of that, getting into the investigation early. They know something we don't know, and they know it's suspicious. Mel? Can you hear me? Now I can. Okay. Is it because the because these events are transcending state lines, the FBI has found some of the common denominators, as I usually call them, and that's why they're present now investigating all of this? I don't know I don't know why they are suddenly deciding to focus on this other than it would be prudent on their part. I mean, I've said in every one of my books uh on the rural disappearances the FBI did show up on a lot of these cases, but they would specifically say we aren't investigating, we're monitoring the case. And in lingo, what that really means is that they're writing reports and they're sending them to their profiling office in Virginia. And the profilers are sifting through those cases and trying to match them up with other cases that are similar. And I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I can guarantee that the FBI realizes that these are all matched profile points and something is going on that they don't understand. And they're slowly moving up the mark and arriving earlier and earlier at cases to do their work. This is an episode, a full episode for the X-Files. But here's another cluster, Boston, Massachusetts. And this is obviously, everybody knows Boston, Cambridge. We have a huge cluster of educational institutions over there. 
William Hurley, age 24, missing October 8th, 09. Interesting fact, he's found in the water deceased on October 14th at 2.30 in the morning. He had been missing for five days and six hours. The authorities stated he had been in the water for two days. Where was Will for those first three days and six hours? I mentioned this because this also seems to be a common denominator. People appear dead in the water days or weeks after they disappeared, but authorities claim the victim has was in the water for a shorter amount of time. As you say, quote, this case epitomizes the ridiculous way society and the news accept deaths in water, unquote. And I can't emphasize that enough. Uh, I would be exceptionally pleased if a national journalist would really take this and and get away from the conspiracy angle, which is something I don't do, and just present facts. Because facts are strange enough on their face, and that's all I'm doing in this book as well. Now, William Hurley's case is a classic case for the book because he's, he's considered Mr. Reliable by his friends. That was a quote. He's never late. Uh, he's 24 years old. His nickname was Will. On October 8th at 8.30, uh, he went to a Boston Bruins game with a friend, a work friend. Uh, Will was raised in Nashville. He joined the Navy out of high school. He was mostly stationed in Florida. His, his Navy group at one time went to Boston to do some work, and that's actually where he met uh, the love of his life, a girl named Claire Mahoney. Claire and William ended up living together when he got out of the Navy, and they lived in Quincy, Mass., uh, on October 8th, the day he disappeared, Will woke up at about 4.30 a.m., a normal time, and he was a groundskeeper at Weston Country Club in Weston, Mass. His best friend at the country club, a, a boy named Brendan Venti, invited him to go to a Bruins game that night in downtown Boston. They're playing the Ducks at TD Gardens Arena. TD Gardens is right downtown, right next to a series of rivers. At the end of the first period, Will was tired. He told Brendan that he had been up for hours and he, he just wanted to call Claire and go home and he needed some sleep for work the next morning. He called Claire and she started driving to the arena. When she was about two blocks away, she called Will and asked for his exact location so she could drive up to him. And Will said, okay, I'm not 100% sure where I am. And then someone in the background said, you're at 99 Nashua Street, which is right there at the arena. Claire was less than a mile away. And Will told her, hey, I think my cell battery is about to go dead. At that point, the cell battery goes dead and she loses contact with him. Now, I go back to what I say. People are found with dead batteries on their phones or without their phones or something strange goes on simultaneously. And, I, and this happens many times on these disappearances. So Claire turns the corner as the phone goes dead onto the area of 99 Nashua Street and Will's nowhere. She honks her horn, yells, she parks the car, walks around for an hour, sees nothing. She gets back in the car, goes home and calls Boston and Quincy PD, and she's told she has to wait 24 hours. The following day, she files a report, and that following day, her and her mom go down to that area, and they start posting banners and flyers about Will, because it's just completely outside his personality. Well, that Monday, Boston PD puts two boats in the water in the area of the arena, and they start looking for evidence. Well, they don't find the body, but what they did find is they found his cell phone, and they identified it from a serial number, smashed into 100 pieces. And they didn't say exactly where they found it, but they found it. Friends and family were interviewed and stated, quote-unquote, this is stunningly out of character for Will. Six days after he disappeared on October 14th, Boston PD patrolman was on routine patrol in an area near the Suffolk County Jail on Nashua Street, just down from the arena. They saw a body in the water 25 feet from shore. They pulled it in. It was Will's. He had his wallet and his keys on his body. The district attorney made a statement that the coroner is saying that the body was in the water for a couple of days. Well, he was missing for five days and six hours. To me, the suspicious part, where was he for the other three days? Uh, how did the cell phone get blasted into a hundred little pieces? How did it go dead when she was turning the corner? Will was Mr. Reliable. He left the arena early just so he could go home and get sleep. The idea that he walked away when he knew Claire was around the corner, 
is not plausible. You know, one thought that comes to mind when I see so many young adults dead under mysterious circumstances is that I wonder if someone wants to get rid of these high intellect individuals or perhaps they all know something someone doesn't want out. It reminds me of, uh, you probably know about the mysterious deaths of scientists and microbiologists all in their prime. Many married with young children, they appear dead or quote-unquote commit suicide. You have heard of those stories too, right? Well, and in my last book, I wrote about a series of physicists that have disappeared, some in national parks that have never been found, some physicians that have disappeared and never been found. So I'm right there with you. It's, it's really odd. And throughout the book, in many cases, you say, quote-unquote, cause of death remained unknown or undetermined, and I could never find any toxicology results released by the coroner, unquote. Why do you think so many times reports show an absence of toxicology results, if that's something that's imminent, imperative, with every investigation and, and pathological uh, procedure? So when a coroner does an autopsy, they take blood, urine, other samples, and they submit them to a lab. And it usually takes about six weeks to get those results. So at the front end, when they're done with the autopsy, they'll release a preliminary report. But to get those toxicology results sometimes can take six weeks. I, honestly, what I said earlier is I think it's just laziness on the side of reporters who don't want to go back and spend that extra time to present the facts. I think it's I think it's poor journalism. When I say that finding a dead body in the, the water shows plausible deniability, I use that term a lot, I mean this. If the person is kidnapped or held against their will for whatever reason, and then moved to the water while alive, the person is drowned. That way it's difficult to show foul play like shooting or poisoning. I'm just scratching my head again as to what happens. But why do you think, one, news agencies don't pursue answers, and two, medical examiners wish to conceal their facts? So I, I don't think the medical examiners are concealing facts purposely, but I, I do think that they're writing reports based on that local perception. Maybe there's some type of political pressure to, and on Jay Polhill's case in Chicago, there was some articles that were written saying that there was pressure on local authorities to keep the homicide rate down. So in Pole Hill's case, to place the cause of death as undetermined versus homicide, another homicide raises the homicide rate in Chicago, bad press, bad tourism, etc. So maybe there's some pressure like that coming from somewhere to keep those numbers down. And maybe there's just overall pressure and to say, well, somebody drowns versus, no, it's showing here that they were outside that river for three days, even though they were gone for five days. If they made a big deal, or if they just told the truth from that on the front end, just one of those cases would make front page headlines in the news, you'd think. And imagine what that would do to the commissioner, to the sheriff, to the local congressman. I mean, it goes from the bottom up. It makes everybody look bad. So... It's almost like they're, they're scratching, you know, remember in the manufacturing industry, when you have people doing quality assurance audits, a lot of the people were hiding the information to look good. So in a way, this might be what's happening here, but it appears, as you say, to the public that these are a bunch of idiotic college kids falling in a drunken stupor into water. But I have a hard time believing that all these high intellectual high intellect individuals are doing this. We have to take a one and only intermission, but when we come back, I want to tell you my theory. It may not make sense to some people, but bear with me, because as you know, I'm always trying to, to connect dots, and speculation is what I'm going to be doing. Speculation is not what David does. He kills rumor with fact, but I like to do that when we come back. David, how can people buy the new book and all your other four books? And you can keep track of missing people that fit this profile, and you can go to canammissing.com, C-A-N as in Nora, A-M as in Mary, canam, like Canadian-American, canammissing.com, and I'm on Facebook as well. Excellent. Well, this is a new chapter to the 411 
missing for one one series. I'm really, really enjoying this new new angle because I always wondered. I saw so many mysterious disappearances in the cities. And I was wondering when David was going to start investigating that. I'm glad that you are doing so now. Folks, don't go anywhere. Always a very fascinating and riveting interview with David Polites. When we come back, so much more. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com, click on Members, or subscribe or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, supplements, a USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy. Enjoy. 